Blog Talk Radio. Personally, niggas rather work for the man than to work with me. Just so they can pretend they on my level. That shit is irking to me. Pride always goes before the fall, almost certainly. It's disturbing what I grow. What I grow. Survey says you're not even close. Not even close. Everybody's bosses to the time to pay for the office. To them invoices separate the men. From the boys over here, we measure success by how many people successful next to you. Here we say you broke if everybody gets broke except for you. Wow.
Tune in every Sunday from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on the bottom line with Joey L. On the new Evolution Radio Network. I want to talk to you and talk to everybody out there about what I have learned is the most important and efficient way to get where you want to be. It's to visualize. Don't hit me on my belly cause I'm on right now. I see the leeches clipping. Try to make me find something upside down. You can't take happy. where you're going to be 5, 10, 20 years from now. And I promise you will be there.
Don't touch that dial. We'll be right back after these messages on Evolution Radio. Number one, the 14th Amendment is very questionable as to whether or not somebody can come over, have a baby, and immediately that baby is a citizen. Uh, okay? you know, the court has pretty much said you're that right. it reads an immigrant well, there. This, this is a minority legal Chris, opinion you're talking about. There are many people that totally feel that... They may want look, it that way. Amending is too big a deal. It's going to take... It'll be two terms. I'd be in my second term or my eighth year by the time, assuming everything went smoothly, because to amend the Constitution... Takes a long time. But I believe... Especially on a very divisive issue. I believe you can win it legally, okay? I believe you can win it legally. And in any event, the parents have to leave. Given what most Americans believe... The next statement may be more shocking than any previous. The fact is, the United States is not a country, but a corporation contractually created by the Constitution. Your state is a country, per the law, and your original citizenship is of that country. Our founders instituted themselves to be first and foremost citizens of their respective states. As of 1787, those states already had formed a union, and they created the Constitution for the purpose of perfecting that union in forming a national government. They did not intend that the new nation have any jurisdiction or powers over the states or their citizens that were not specifically enumerated in the Constitution. They stated this point quite clearly in Article 1, Section 8, Clause 17 of the Constitution. They granted the United States exclusive legislation in all cases whatsoever over such district not exceeding 10 miles square as may become the seat of the government of the United States, our District of Columbia, and to exercise authority over all places purchased by the consent of the states. And that is all. The framers further secured the rights of the people with the Ninth and Tenth Amendments in the Bill of Rights. In the Ninth, they established that the enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. And in the Tenth, they made clear that the powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, nor prohibited by it to the states, are reserved to the states respectively, or to the people. The only way the federal government can have any jurisdiction beyond these constitutional clauses is by written permission or contract. Which leads us to another piece of the puzzle, the 14th Amendment to the Constitution, ratified in 1868 following the Civil War. As barbaric as it may sound today, the black slaves prior to the conclusion of the Civil War were legally considered to be property with none of the rights or privileges of free-born people, only duties. The money interests took advantage of America's desire to free the slaves and found a way to use the swiftly adopted post-war constitutional amendments to enslave all of the people. The deceit is in the wording of both the 13th and 14th Amendments. You will note that the 13th Amendment provides that neither slavery nor involuntary servitude shall exist within the United States. But why the emphasis on involuntary servitude? Isn't it the same thing as slavery? Sure it is. But they had to mention the concept of involuntary servitude because they wished to retain another type of slavery, voluntary servitude. Voluntary servitude is an ancient and established concept 
It was the way serfs became subjects to their lords during feudal times in England and other European countries. It was a way for free men to earn a living at a time when all property was held by a select few, and thus anyone who wanted to farm and support their family had first to agree to be subject to a lord of the land. Our forefathers hated this concept and designed our constitution to exclude titles of nobility, making all Americans sovereign. The 14th Amendment turned the intention of the founders on its ear by making voluntary servitude a requirement for former slaves to gain the rights already guaranteed to free-born United States citizens. When the slaves were released from their involuntary servitude following the war, their status was changed from that of being property to that of being a person, but being a person still entitled them to none of the rights associated with citizenship. So the 14th Amendment ostensibly was written to provide the former slaves with the same constitutional rights of freeborn American citizens, but only if they agreed first to become subject to the jurisdiction of the corporate United States, making oneself paramountly, that is, first subject to the jurisdiction of the laws of the United States, however, limits access to parts of the Bill of Rights, as we'll explain in a moment. But first remember, anyone who voluntarily subjects himself to the laws or jurisdiction of another is, in every way, obligated to abide by the terms of any contracts or laws established by whomever establishes the rules of the contract. In simple terms, this meant that the former slaves became subjects first to the United States and secondly to the state in which they lived. They had no sovereignty whatsoever. This status had never existed in the United States prior to that time. The 14th Amendment created a new class of citizenship in the United States, a second-class citizenship. Up until 1868, every American was a paramount citizen of their state, and by virtue of that, also a citizen of the United States with full individual sovereignty as guaranteed by Amendments 9 and 10 in the Bill of Rights. But so-called naturalized citizens, or 14th Amendment citizens, are paramountly subject to all laws of the United States and, having no status as freeborn citizens, have no access at all to the unenumerated rights retained for the people by Articles 9 and 10 of the Bill of Rights. That's because, in order to get any rights at all, they had to subject themselves to the jurisdiction of the corporate United States, which left them no unenumerated rights. The only rights they had were those specifically written into the Constitution. The sad tragedy of America today is that all U.S. citizens, regardless of race, are now 14th Amendment slaves due to contracts with the government of the United States through Social Security, birth certificates, driving licenses, citizenship statements, tax forms, and many other documents. The true paramount citizenship that all Americans deserve is that of their respective state, which is a sovereign citizenship. Such status would exempt them from federal and state income taxes, as well as property and inheritance taxes. This sovereign citizenship was the status held by our forefathers. Now, if you're still thinking that the U.S. government needs to have a central bank and collect income tax or it will collapse, think again. 
over two-thirds of the federal government's income is derived from sources other than income tax. There is even evidence suggesting that none of your income tax is used by the government. Fees, excise taxes, tariffs, sales taxes, and other forms of income have easily supported the U.S. budget in the past and could easily support it now. We have done without a national bank for large stretches of our history, and the U.S. Treasury is perfectly capable of printing and managing a money supply. In fact, the only constitutionally sanctioned currency is backed by gold or other precious metals. This is a far more stable form of currency and is the type of money the Treasury was designed to handle. The government was doing so well collecting money under these original laws that it had amassed a huge surplus by the time this cartoon was penned a hundred years later in 1887, when there still was no income tax collected at all. Up to this point, we have shown you how the money interests have, one, established the Federal Reserve System, and two, exploited a second class of citizenship created by the 14th Amendment for other purposes, and we have mentioned a few names involved in the creation of the Fed. But there are other organizations working for our economic enslavement as well along with other extremely rich and powerful international bankers those who support the fed have created a global movement to centralize economic power in various puppet organizations that preach peace and stability through some variation of socialism but act aggressively to draw nations into a web of foreign debt and servitude to their agenda the united nations the world monetary fund and the council on foreign relations are all committed to an agenda of world domination through manipulation of economic power. The Council on Foreign Relations openly admits to being a private club, yet it is the primary recruiting post in both international banking and the federal government of the United States. Richard Nixon, Nelson Rockefeller, John Foster Dulles, Dean Rusk, Alger Hiss, Robert S. McNamara, and every president since FDR, with the exception of John Kennedy, have been members of this exclusive club where super financiers and your elected representatives can mix freely and plan the next step in the consolidation of power in a new world order. You know, happiness is a dimension of our own nature. Happiness, from a spiritual point of view, it's not based on conditions or circumstances. Innately, we're happy beings. We're spiritual beings. So that means that happiness and joy are already built within. And as we're growing spiritually, we are removing filters from seeing or feeling the happiness that's already there. When we're somewhat blocked, happiness is conditioned. We say, well, I got a new car, therefore I'm happy. Or this person didn't call me back, therefore I'm unhappy. And so it's conditioned based. But as we mature spiritually and we begin to touch into our real nature and being, we notice that we're happy regardless of what's going on. Something bad happens, we don't like it, but the happiness is still there. Uh, someone doesn't call us back, some plan doesn't work out, we don't like it, but the happiness is still there. So that's a sign of spiritual maturity. So can we define happiness as the way to transform every emotion and transform it in, to feel something right? Yes, you, you can uh, 
basically, you, you discover your happiness when you're able to see that in every circumstance there is possibility, there's potential, and there's an energy behind it pushing you to a greater expression of, of, of who and what you really are. People become frustrated and unhappy if they feel there's no way out, if they feel that every road is blocked. But in reality, with a capital R, there's no such world. No world like that exists. We're surrounded by infinite possibilities. And so with a shift of perception and attitude, you begin to see those possibilities. And those possibilities uh, invite us uh, to activate potential within us. Uh, the gifts and talents within us that are latent, the possibilities invite us to activate, to discover and activate those, those possibilities. So again, then happiness would be us uh, becoming more ourselves. That'd be a very blissful state, you see. So it doesn't deny that bad things happen in the world. It doesn't deny that people die. People die on us. You know, people leave. Jobs change. It doesn't deny that. But when we come to an understanding that even with all the changes that are going on in the phenomenal world, there's still something about us that's permanent. There's something about us that's forever. And that part of us that's forever is spiritual, which means it never, it never began and it will never end. And as we become more and more identified with that, identified not just in, with a belief system, but identified that with some kind of spiritual practice, some kind of focus, some kind of intention, then our life takes on a whole different, a whole different vibration. How we can overcome the fear of rejection? Rejection is paying too much attention. The fear of rejection is paying too much attention to what other people are thinking about you and other, what other people are thinking about what you're thinking about. And people live in that kind of a bubble. I wonder if that person likes me. I wonder if this person appreciates me. And those are, uh, that's the wrong mode of being in the world. You have to think about what the universe thinks about you. And the universe thinks you're important. The, the, whatever name you want to use, you can say the universe, you can say the cosmos, you can say God, whatever. What, what, is, what does the universe think of you? And because you were created, you have meaning, you are important, you're worthy, you're worthwhile, because you weren't made accidentally, you weren't just accidentally made. Uh, nature didn't just come together and accidentally make you, you know. Uh, there was a perfect idea behind you with c complete potential and possibility uh, to be activated. So you have to begin to think about, we all have to begin to think about how does the universe think about me? Not how does that person over there think about me? Not how those group of people over there think about me. That's a waste of my time. Then I start to people please. I start to do things to make them like me, and, and, which may take away from my mission, may take away from my authenticity. It may take away from my, my powers because I'm thinking about what they're thinking about. And they're thinking about what I'm thinking about. Everybody's thinking about what other people are thinking about what they're thinking about. <laughs> no. And what difference do you, do you see between pay attention to others yeah. and learn from feedback of others? Yeah. yeah, you can learn from feedback. From others. I'm not overly concerned about what others are thinking about me because I'm living my passion and my purpose and my intention and then life gives me feedback. If, if I'm being stubborn in some area, then, then, then there'll be some feedback from either life itself or from people. If, if I'm being arrogant, 
you'll get the feedback. If you're being wishy-washy, you get the feedback. So you learn how to pay attention. And, you know, as you, as you mature and become more comfortable with yourself, you're able to take criticism. And what happens is uh, you start paying, uh, you start seeing, what, what, what they're called the two imposters, criticism and praise. There are people that praise you and people that criticize you. But after a while, you don't really care about either one of them. They're called imposters. And so if somebody's criticizing you and saying, oh, you don't know what you're talking about, you know, shut up, whatever, <laughs> you, 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 you don't care. It's like, thank you for your feedback, you know. <laughs> and if somebody says, oh, you're the greatest, you're the greatest, you, 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 you're the best, you say, thank you, for your, thank you for your feedback. You start treating both the same because you're not trying to get something from the people. You're giving a gift to the people. You're getting your information and your energy directly from the life force, you see. You're getting fed by life. Life is giving you information, and you're sharing it. And if people don't want it, and they say, ah, it's a bunch of baloney, thank you. I won't give it to you, you know. And if somebody says, I want it, thank you. Here it is. But after a while, praise and criticism, you don't really care because you're, you're, you're becoming so in tune inside of yourself. Yeah. It's, like, it's like if you are a mathematician, and you know that 10 plus 10 is 20. You know it. It's not an opinion. You know it. And you stand in front of a group. And you start to do your math. And somebody says, I don't believe that. What are you going to do? You're going to say, okay, thank you. You know, you know 10 plus 10 is 20. You say, okay, thank you very much. <laughs> They're giving you feedback where you need to grow. Because when you get out here as a public figure, people talk about you. If you do really good, they talk about you more. You do really, really good, they talk about you really, really more. It, it yeah. goes with scale. And yeah. then you learn this. Um, mediocrity attacks excellence all the time. And so if you're seeking to live a, an excellent life, those who are, have agreement with mediocrity, they attack you because you're making them uncomfortable. They want to stay small, so they attack people who are trying to do big things. Let's talk about the law of attraction. According to you, how we can use the law of attraction? Well, the, the basic. First, start with the basics. The basic law is what you chronically think about is what you bring about in your experience. A thought is a unit of mental energy. Energy can never be created or destroyed. Energy just keeps changing itself into higher or lower expressions. So if you're constantly thinking negative, you know, uh, life is hard and, and then you die. There's not enough good jobs around. Uh, there's no crisis. Yeah, there's everything is working. Then you, your, your body temple gets that message. The cells of your of your body begin to hear that. It starts to produce produce toxic chemicals. Your immune system starts to become unhinged. Starts to be, be impaired. Your thinking starts to go down because of the toxic chemicals, and you start to bring about what you're thinking about. You become sick. Uh, not as much energy, so therefore your opportunities are depleted, uh, your energy is down, critical thinking goes down, and then you start to bring about that negativity that you're describing. But you'd be changed around, and you begin to say, you know, I'm surrounded uh, by opportunities. Life is good. Everything is working together for my good. I, 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 I'm surrounded by infinite opportunities. Uh, prosperity is right here. And then what happens? When you start to say that, your mood is lifted, Tonic chemicals and endorphins start to go through the body, starts to amplify your immune system, 
your thinking becomes more clearer. You start to see life differently. Opportunities, you start to see opportunities that you couldn't see before. Possibilities open up that you didn't even know about because your attitude has changed. And what looks like the law of attraction is simply you lifting your vibration so that you can see the potential that's here. And then we call it the law of attraction, but what it really is, I call it the law of, the law of radiation, the law of emergence. Because what you're doing is allowing that which is within you to come out and, and to radiate and to emerge and to express. And then in the physical form, good things happen. And it looks like it's a, you're attracting it. But what's really happening is you're radiating it. And what you're radiating is becoming visible. Good day. I want to talk with you about Fourth Amendment jurisprudence from a constitutional criminal aspect. Uh, we're dealing with the uh, Constitution of the United States of America and the federal criminal procedure and those cases that impact upon the Fourth Amendment today. So we're talking about uh, the language of the Fourth Amendment. My goal is to review uh, the amendment and the applicable cases and see if we can tease out from those cases a set of rules, a set of procedures, steps, if you will, that we can practically apply whenever we're trying to decide whether or not a piece of evidence should be admitted or excluded at trial. My goal when we're done with this block of instruction is that you will be able to take it, use the analytical template that I provide for you, connect it to your knowledge of the cases, and be able to go forth and solve these issues uh, in the real world. Okay. We'll start here with the language of the Fourth Amendment, uh, and this comes right from the Constitution of the United States. The right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated, and no warrant shall issue but upon probable cause, supported by oath or affirmation, and particularly describing the place to be searched and the persons to be seized. Now, I have highlighted various portions of this slide because I want to draw your attention to their connection to the substantive case law that follows and the procedures that we need to employ when we properly apply Fourth Amendment jurisprudence. You'll notice that we're, we're concerned primarily with the security of the individual. This is an amendment that is designed to limit the power of the state to intrude into your, into your private space. Now, they did not define it as privacy back in the 1700s. They go to the physical location, your person, your houses, your papers, and your effects. It's been subsequently defined as a privacy right and simultaneously as a trespassory right, and we'll talk about that. And the protection is only against an unreasonable search and seizure. And this means that some searches and some seizures are in fact reasonable. What's the test for reasonableness? Well, we look to see whether or not there is a warrant with probable cause supported, supported by an oath or affirmation that particularly describes the person to be arrested or the property to be seized. Now this is important because this concept of probable cause exists throughout the Fourth Amendment jurisprudence. And probable cause is something that individuals struggle with. It's somewhat amorphous from a definition perspective. You know it when you see it, 
but you're not always able to effectively apply it um, without having thought about it first. And what I want to do is to think about probable cause. I want us to think about probable cause together, not only from an arrest perspective, but also from a search perspective. So both seizure and search. And let's take a look at that. Here's probable cause to arrest up here on the screen now. Probable cause to arrest exists when I have facts in a set of circumstances that are reasonably trustworthy so that a person of reasonable caution could believe that the offense has been or is being committed. And that's language from a case. So what does it really mean in a nutshell? It means if a reasonable person applying a reasonable thought process to the evidence that was available to them would think, hey, yeah, I think that guy's about to commit a crime, that's sufficient to establish probable cause. And so probable cause uh, could be, from a shorthand perspective, uh, redefined as reasonable belief. Uh, you've got to have a certain quantum of evidence about the person and about the crime that's being committed. And that's sufficient for probable cause to arrest. And if I'm going to get a search warrant, I have to establish probable cause. I bring it to the magistrate. I swear that what I'm telling is true. The magistrate uh, does a check of it, a judicial oversight. And if the magistrate agrees, they'll then authorize the search warrant. Now, we all know that many times there are exceptions to the need to get a warrant. We'll talk about those in a minute. But there is generally not an exception to have probable cause before the arrest is made. So probable cause becomes the linchpin around which all of Fourth Amendment jurisprudence revolves. And I have to understand probable cause and the things that can create it so that I can effectively determine whether or not the cops were within their rights when they go to admit or exclude evidence. So that's probable cause to arrest. Let's look at probable cause to search now. Probable cause to search is similar to probable cause to arrest. Um, we're focusing on the knowledge of the police officer, uh, and again, reasonable, trustworthy information that is sufficient in and of themselves to warrant a person of reasonable belief or caution to believe that an item subject to seizure is found in the place that they want to search it. So in other words, I've got the instrumentalities of a crime, the fruits of a crime. I know what it is and I know where I think it is, and I have a reasonable belief that it's located in that location. That's probable cause. So I've got to show property subject to seizure. I've got to show that it's presently located somewhere and that it's a place that I want to search. Again, sometimes I need to get a warrant. Sometimes I can dispense with a warrant because of the circumstances surrounding when the seizure occurs. We'll talk about those. All of these are, by the way, they're in a flow chart that we're going to discuss at the end of this presentation, and they're also in a series of numerical steps, an outline, if you will, of how you should proceed as you begin to analyze Fourth Amendment jurisprudence. Before we do that, though, let's look at probable cause and possible factors in evaluating the validity, if you will, of probable cause. Now, we've established that it's reasonable belief, and as we think about reasonable belief, in order to determine whether or not the belief is reasonable, there are some things that could be helpful to us. The reliability of the source of the information, whether or not the source of the information has some underlying motive that cuts against the person that they're providing information about, 
factually, did they even have the ability to see what it is that they're claiming to see, this ability to observe? Um, so if I'm concerned with reliability, motive to lie, and ability to observe, and, and for motive to lie you could also include just bias or prejudice for or against someone, then I've got to look at how they got the information. And by how they got the information, I'm talking about the police officer to whom the information has come. Sometimes they see it themselves. Boy, that's, that's sweet evidence for probable cause. If a cop brings forward evidence that they themselves have observed, that's generally going to be enough for the magistrate. Sometimes it comes from another eyewitness. If it comes from another eyewitness, we've got to do a little bit more analysis. We have to dig a little deeper and look at that particular eyewitness in terms of whether or not they're reliable, their motive, and their ability to see what it is they claim that they've seen. We'll talk about the different types of eyewitnesses that happen. Sometimes a cop has rumor. They have a hunch. They have a guess, but they don't have probable cause. And that's where police officers get in trouble from the standpoint of attempting to manufacture probable cause that's actually not effective. And then occasionally we'll have hearsay statements. And what do we mean by hearsay? Well, every statement made by a confidential informant, an informant, or a third party is, in fact, a hearsay statement being given to the police officer that they want to then use to form the, um, the probable cause to get the warrant. The court is going to be concerned with the quantum of information. In other words, how much information did they have? The quality of the information that was provided, think of this as the, um, the detail, the detail and how correct the detail is. And then the timeliness of the information, because if the information is old, uh, if it's already passed, if it's been overcome by events, so to speak, it's really not going to be useful uh, to the police officer in getting probable cause. Now, once I've established in, in my head from a general perspective how probable cause uh, works, then I should start looking at the two types of um, probable cause situations I have, and I've got them up here on the slide for you. One is to arrest, and the other one is to search. Probable cause to get a warrant to arrest someone, I have to show two things to the magistrate. I've got to show that a crime was or will be committed, and that the person that I wish to arrest is the individual who committed that crime. And I've got to show all that to the reasonable belief standard using the quantum, the quality, and the timeliness of the information. It's got to be information that there was a reasonable belief in its accuracy. Now, to search, it's a little bit different. Again, I have to show that a crime was or will be committed, but then I need to show that there's going to be evidence from that situation that is specifically related to the crime. Now, this could be, in a stolen goods case, the goods that were stolen. It could also be, in an armed robbery case, the weapons that were used. Uh, the information that was acquired. Uh, think of it as the things that made it possible to commit the crime or the fruits that were received from the crime. If I've got either one of those, I'm probably going to be okay. And then finally, not only do I have to show that there was a crime and that there is uh, evidence from that crime, but I have to show that I know that evidence is in a certain place. Because the warrant for searching goes with specificity to a particular location. Think about it for a moment. What a warrant gives me is the power to intrude into what is normally the right of an individual to be secure, person, papers, places, or effects. 
So I'm saying to the government, government, you are empowered to disturb, to, to pass over, to trespass into this person's personal space. We are obviating their right to privacy because of the probable cause that's been established. And so it's important that I get that right before the government uh, does what it needs to do. So how do, I, um, how do I get proof of probable cause for a warrant? Well, we've talked about the standard, but, but where does that actually factually come from? I mean, wh what really generates probable cause? If a cop says, I saw direct testimony of a police officer, giving sufficient evidence that a reasonable person would believe that the crime was committed, that's going to be enough for probable cause. It's going to be enough to go to a, a magistrate and get a warrant. It's also going to be enough in certain circumstances for the cops to take action without going back to the court and getting a warrant. And they'll be able to, to arrest or to search based upon that probable cause, given the circumstances, without the need for a warrant. Now, sometimes I have indirect testimony. I'll talk about indirect testimony in just a moment. Sometimes the reputation might be sufficient. Well, what would be an example? Uh, certain types of places that engage in criminal activity tend to be arranged and to appear in a certain fashion. I want you to think about uh, crack houses that you've seen on television with the boarded up windows. Perhaps there's a sign that is known in the drug community that here's a spot where you can buy drugs. Uh, one of the ones that's prevalent in the community where I live right now is a pair of shoes hung over a telephone line. That's an indication that drug deals go down within this area. Uh, if that's known by reputation and you can show that location to the court, that can be sufficient uh, to get you a warrant. If someone admits that a crime was committed, in other words, a confession by someone, that could be sufficient. Circumstantial evidence. Maybe I don't have rumor, maybe I don't have a direct eyewitness, but I have lots of small things that when I bring them together in the aggregate through police work, leads us to believe reasonably that a crime has been committed and that a particular person committed it. And then sometimes circumstantial evidence plus the opinion of someone looking at it can be enough to push the court over the boundary into giving us probable cause to have a, an arrest warrant executed. Now, I mentioned in that slide up here, indirect testimony and direct testimony. This slide talks about the different types of direct and indirect testimony. I want you to look at these four categories. They're important because different um, categories have a different impact on how the court is going to consider the probable cause that comes from them. If I have the victim in a particular case, a victim of a crime. A statement by the victim based upon their own personal experiences or observations is going to be sufficient to establish probable cause for an arrest warrant or a search warrant. With one caveat, if the victim happens to be a member of organized crime themselves, in other words, they're from a rival gang, a rival family, or they are themselves involved in criminal activity, we're going to want corroboration before we're going to allow probable cause to be established. Why? Well, think back to that very first slide where we talked about motive and bias to lie. Uh, quite often, individuals who are involved in criminal activities themselves 
have a reason to either point the finger at someone else or to give the government something for their own benefit. So you've got to be aware of that. Neutral citizens. A neutral citizen is sufficient. No corroboration required. Cops are also okay. The interesting one is the fourth one down here, informants. Informants, by the way, are often used by law enforcement to ensure that they have um, an inside track into what's happening from a criminal perspective. And there are generally two types of informants uh, that police use. One is an anonymous informant. I get a phone call. I get a tip. And another one is a known informant. And there are two different tests that are out there that address the use of these types of informants, and they both come from the federal case law. The first one is the, is the Spinelli test, or the Aguilar-Spinelli test, as it's often referred to. And that's a two-pronged test, where we look at the, um, the status of the informant, known or unknown, and we look at the reliability of the information. Uh, that's an older test in the federal criminal law that's not always applied uh, in the federal jurisdiction any longer, but is often applied in state jurisdictions. And so you need to know Aguilar-Spinelli for the background of how informants are dealt with. The current law, at least in the federal court, comes from Gates v. Illinois. And that case says that the law enforcement should look at the totality of the circumstances. Look at everything that's involved and the information that they got and when they got it and their ability to verify it, what's the same, what's different. And if in the totality of the circumstances I've got that reasonable belief, then I've got probable cause. Uh, what, what the Gates test did was remove from most appellate uh, arguments the issue of the validity of information that came from a for an informant from a Fourth Amendment perspective. It was a very uh, tricky and intelligent opinion on the part of, uh, of then uh, Justice Rehnquist. So I've got all this thought in my head. I I've defined probable cause so that it effectively works for me. Uh, I've got the concept of reasonable belief, quantum of evidence, quality of evidence, timeliness of the information. How do I then bring all this together uh, into a Fourth Amendment jurisprudence approach so that I can effectively decide whether or not a search is valid uh, after the fact? Well, look at this slide right here. I've given you um, six steps that you should think about. First of all, who does the amendment apply to? Well, it applies to citizens of the United States uh, individuals who are here uh, who interface with law enforcement. The next question is, uh, was there government action? We'll talk about that in a moment. Has there been an actual search and seizure? If there was that search and seizure, at the time of the search and seizure, did probable cause exist as previously defined? Was there a requirement that law enforcement get a warrant, or was there an exception to that requirement to get a warrant? When they conducted the search, whether they had a warrant or not, was the search in question reasonable given the information that was available to the police at the time? And then what do we do if there is a violation of the Fourth Amendment? And the answer is if there is a violation of the Fourth Amendment, we exclude that evidence under the exclusionary rule, which is an entire piece of doctrine that is both connected to and separate from Fourth Amendment jurisprudence. So how do I sort these, uh, these broad questions out in my mind? Well, I look at my list here. 
who was conducting the search, what were they looking for, did they have a suspicion, why did they have that suspicion, did they get a warrant, where were they looking? So what do we mean by that? Let's say I've got a cop, he's walking down the street, he sees something happen that establishes probable cause that he thinks someone has a, oh, let's, let's call it a knife, an 18-inch big old pig stick and knife. He sees this knife, and then the guy that he sees with the knife runs into a house. The cop thinks that the knife matches the description of something that had been stolen. So he follows the guy into the home, and he arrests the guy. The guy doesn't have the knife on him. Police officer is in this home. There's other people in the home. The knife, he thinks, is here somewhere. He can go and look in places where that knife might be and potentially have probable cause to do so. But what could he not do? Well, he couldn't open the pill box and go through the pills that are in the medicine cabinet. He could not go into the drawer where the socks are and unroll the socks to see if the knife is inside the socks. That's just one example of reasonableness versus unreasonableness of police actions. We can talk about others from the, um, from the case files. Uh, so how do I sort through this stuff? Well, there's about a, a six-question test that's very helpful. And I've got the first three on this slide right here. So take a look at it. We're talking about, is there government conduct, right? This is an important beginning point in your analysis. If the reason that law enforcement becomes aware of uh, the presence of a criminal fruits of a crime, let's say, is because mom found the stolen stuff in son's room, and mom turns it into the cops, it really doesn't matter whether or not mother had probable cause to search her son's room. Unless she's acting as an agent for the state at the time that she goes and looks, the government is not implicated. There's no Fourth Amendment analysis that's involved. I've got to have government conduct to kick off a Fourth Amendment analysis. Now, once I have government conduct, the next question that I ask myself is, is there a search and a seizure? Well, how do I determine whether or not taking custody of someone's body or intruding into someone's space was a reasonable or an unreasonable thing to do? Well, the court tells us, and they told us in Katz and in the progeny from the Katz decision, that we look at the reasonable expectation of privacy of the person who is being searched or who is being arrested. And that reasonable expectation of privacy is both a subjective and an objective test. We looked at whether or not the individual subjectively thought that they had a right to privacy, and then we look at whether or not society as a whole objectively believes that that uh, privacy be belief by the individual is reasonable. Um, once we've done that, we then look for probable cause. So government intrusion expectation of privacy, probable cause. And as I think about probable cause, I need to define probable cause. Uh, is it for arresting or for searching? Uh, was there evidence there? Remember, I now know that the evidence, I need reasonable belief. Um, 
And what tests or factors do I use for probable cause? Think back to our earlier discussion where we looked at uh, both probable cause to arrest and probable cause to search. These are the first three steps in any analysis of um, a potential Fourth Amendment issue in a criminal context. But they're not the only three steps. Look at the next four, or the next three. Was there a warrant for the arrest or search? If there was a warrant, did we have probable cause? Did the warrant appropriately limit the actions of the police based upon the information that was available at the time the warrant was executed? And then was the warrant executed properly? That's the fourth step that I have to look at to make certain that I'm okay from an analytical perspective. And once I've determined whether or not there was a warrant and was the warrant appropriately um, executed, I then look and say, okay, well, maybe there wasn't a warrant. Maybe because of the situation involved, it wasn't feasible. It wasn't possible for the cops to get a warrant in order to, uh, to do their job. So I start looking at the exceptions to a requirement for a warrant when I want to arrest someone. And that's our fifth step. We've got it right up here on the slide. Uh, was it a felony arrest in a public place? That's the Watson case. And if, and if it's a felony arrest in a public place, I'm fine. I don't need anything further. Uh, I'm going to be fine from, a, uh, from an analytical perspective. If it's a misdemeanor offense, as long as it was committed in the presence of the police, I'm going to be okay and I'm going to be able to, uh, to arrest the individual. I'm going to have probable cause to arrest. And that could even be for a misdemeanor offense that does not result in jail time. So, for example, the cops pull you over and you don't have your seatbelt on, and there's a statute in your state that says you have to wear your seatbelt, and it's a misdemeanor offense if you don't wear the seatbelt, the police officer can theoretically arrest you for not wearing the seatbelt, even though you could never go to jail if you were convicted at, at trial of not wearing the seatbelt. Uh, it's a little bit funny to wrap your mind around. But that's the extent to which this power of the police to arrest without a warrant is, is feasible. And, of course, they're limited by uh, procedures within law enforcement offices, but just because uh, you limit someone doesn't mean they don't otherwise have the ability to do it if they want to. So that's the first five steps. And then let's look at the sixth step. Is there an exception to this warrant requirement? Because there are six of them that you need to be concerned with. And each of them flows out of the cases that have looked at Fourth Amendment jurisprudence. And I've got them listed here for you on the slide. Um, they're not mutually exclusive from one another. What does that mean? It means that I could have one, I could have a couple, uh, I might have three or four, um, I might have one that straddles both. The first one is search incident to arrest. If I'm a police officer and I have, am I am effectuating, I am arresting someone and that arrest is a valid arrest, I have the right to search that person for my own safety, for their safety, uh, when I arrest them. And that right to search them extends to the area immediately around them when the arrest occurs. If they're in a car when I arrest them, I can probably search that entire car. Now, if they are outside of the car and I arrest and then I walk them over to their car and search, I might have a problem given some recent Supreme Court jurisprudence. But if I arrest them when they're in the car, I'm going to be fine. Sometimes I'll go... I'm doing police work. I'll reach a certain point in my job. Something's happening in my day. I don't really have probable cause to arrest someone, and then something happens. 
And when it happens, uh, I have a, a case of exigent circumstances. Perhaps somebody runs by me with a bag of heroin running down the street, uh, laughing wildly. And I give chase as a police officer. They, they go into a home, uh, and I follow them into the home without a warrant. Why? Because there's a good likelihood that they're probably going to uh, flush that heroin down the toilet. They're going to destroy evidence. And if I had to go and get a warrant, it, uh, it might take too long. It might happen if I'm knocking on somebody's window, doing a, a door check at night for some reason. Knock, knock, knock. They crack the door open, and the fellow who's a, who answers the front door looks like Cocaine Ricky. He's got cocaine circled all the way around his nose and mouth. His eyes are bloodshot, and he's just higher than a kite. And, uh, and you hear him say, oh, crap, cops. And he, he looks back over his shoulder and goes, get rid of it. Well, come on. That's an exigent circumstance. If I don't go in right now, that those drugs are going to be gone. And in that set of circumstances, I can proceed without a warrant and do what I need to do, and I'm going to be fine because I've got probable cause based upon the circumstances in that moment. The trouble comes when the police officer tries to generate, create, fabricate from whole cloth probable cause when it's really not there. Believe it or not, that actually happens. Our third category are vehicles and container searches. Uh, vehicles are not like... Uh, homes. You don't have that same expectation of privacy because of their mobile nature and the fact that you use public roads to get around on them. So if I have my car and it's parked in my carport or in my garage, it's got the same expectation of privacy that my home has or the curtilage around my home has. If on the other hand, I've got that car parked on the street or I'm driving down the road, well, you can sell your soul to Jesus because you don't have an expectation of privacy at that point in the contents of that car. And if the police validly stop you, they're going to be able to look inside. The same for the containers contained within the car, uh, depending upon the set of circumstances. And then um, sometimes inventory searches are conducted. You know, whenever you arrest someone and you take them down to the station uh, for processing, one of the things that has to happen when you process them is that everything that is within their personal possession has to be cataloged, and it's taken. Possession of it is taken by the police. So if you're wearing a gold ring or a diamond ring or a, a necklace, the cops are going to take that from you. They're going to properly annotate it on the inventory, and they're going to put it in the inventory locker. And you'll get it back when or if you are released from police custody. Well, what if that thing that they took from you turns out to be the instrumentalities of a crime from somewhere else? Do the police need to get a warrant to search your inventory uh, bag while you're in prison or while you're in jail? The answer is no. Because that inventory was conducted for an administrative purpose to ensure that your possessions were kept safe, uh, there's no requirement for a warrant. There's no requirement for probable cause. And that evidence is going to be admissible. It's an issue that comes up from time to time. And then, of course, the next one, our fifth category, is consent. Police officers are, con are trained to ask, would you mind if I looked inside your car? Would you mind uh, emptying your pockets? Do you care about opening your trunk? Now, they're being polite, but they're not doing it to be polite. They're doing it because consent waives the Fourth Amendment right to privacy. Let me say that again. Consent 
waives that Fourth Amendment right to privacy, which means that if you have drugs in your pocket and you say, yeah, sure, go ahead, officer, look, you have just destroyed any Fourth Amendment issue that you might have. And it may be that there wasn't probable cause to arrest you at that point. Something to think about. And then the last one is plain view. Plain view is our sixth category for exceptions to the need for a warrant. Uh, what does plain view mean? Let's say the cop knocks on your door uh, and says, ma'am, do you mind if we come in for a moment? We're uh, interviewing folks in the neighborhood about the accident that happens down the street. Lady says, sure, come on in. You come in, and the cop, while he's standing there talking to uh, the person who lives in that apartment or that house, he's looking around, and he sees, oh, I don't know, uh, marijuana growing in a pot right out there in plain view where anybody could see it, in plain view that was seen by the police officer when the police officer was in a place that he was authorized to be. So if I'm the cop and I'm walking down the street and you've got your pot plants growing in the front yard, that's in plain view. Uh, if I'm walking down the street and I look into the windows of your car and I see uh, a dead body, well, that's in plain view. Uh, the teaching point there is if you're going to kill somebody, make sure you hide them when you're done. Uh, in all seriousness, plain view uh, and consent, those last two of our six exceptions are ones that are routinely used by law enforcement, and they sort of grease the wheels of justice, well, at least most of the time. Now, that brings me to uh, this flow chart, and this flow chart is a wonderful example of how we can properly look at um, Fourth Amendment jurisprudence, and, and, the, and the slide itself is extremely busy. But what I want you to do is to start in the top left-hand corner, in the yellow box, where it says government intrusion. And remember, government intrusion is the first question that we ask when we begin our Fourth Amendment analysis. If we don't have government intrusion, we're done. The Fourth Amendment is not triggered, there are no protections, and away we go. If we do have government intrusion, then we drop down immediately beneath it, and here you see a green box, and that green box says reasonable expectation of privacy. And I've got up here on the flowchart, it's both a subjective and an objective standard. And you'll remember the two-pronged nature of reasonable expectation of privacy, subjective belief of the individual and the objective belief of society. If I have a reasonable expectation of privacy, I've got to go immediately below it to the light blue box. And the question is, do we have probable cause? Probable cause to search or probable cause to arrest? And we look at the totality of the circumstances if we're dealing with an informant, uh, and we look at the source of the information, the quality, the quantum, and the timeliness of the information when deciding whether or not we have probable cause. Now, if I have probable cause... The next question below PC is, did I get a search authorization and was it properly obtained? If the answer is yes, I'm all the way down in the bottom box, the red box, the evidence is going to be admissible. Now, we know, though, that most of the time I either don't have a reasonable expectation of privacy, I screwed up probable cause, or I didn't get a search warrant. And in each of those three instances, I wind up in the box here in the middle of the graphic which are the exceptions to probable cause and search warrants. And I've got them listed here for you. Search incident to apprehension, we've already talked about. Uh, inspections, border searches, inventory, sobriety checkpoints, employee searches, and medical purposes, 
Those are all examples of where the police are acting uh, in their administrative capacity for the health and welfare of society, and we focus on the purpose of why they were doing that. And if they were doing it in accordance with an established procedure and not as a subterfuge to get around the Fourth Amendment, what's discovered is probably going to be admissible at trial. And then I've also got up here stop and frisk. Stop and frisk is interesting because stop and frisk is that in between the cop thinks nothing's going on and probable cause. They sometimes have a concept called reasonable suspicion where their intuition, their hunch tells them that they think uh, this individual may have been involved in something inappropriate. Uh, perhaps they're concerned for the safety of the officer. Perhaps they're concerned for the safety uh, of the folks in the immediate environs. And, and what, what reasonable suspicion gives me, and it comes from Terry v. Ohio, that particular case, it allows the police officer to minimally intrude uh, into the life of the individual to make certain that they're safe. It's often referred to as stop and frisk to make certain that there's not a threat. The interesting thing about reasonable suspicion is that if something further happens while they're stopping and frisking, I may shift into full-blown probable cause. So it becomes an intermediate stepping stone to probable cause when I don't first have it. And we've got it up here on the slide. Uh, and then, of course, I've already talked about exigent circumstances and the automobile exception. If I don't have any of that, I may still be able to admit the evidence. The police could have screwed up reasonable expectation of privacy. They could have uh, made a mess of probable cause. We go to the exceptions, and their exceptions don't work. But you know what? If they fall into one of the categories of the exclusionary rule, we can still make that search a valid search. We can still make that, that arrest a valid arrest and admit the evidence at trial. And these exclusionary rule exceptions are in the green box over here down on the corner. And what exclusionary rule exceptions for right now, and we'll talk about it in a different presentation, there's the good faith basis, independent source, inevitable discovery, attenuation of the taint, and, and impeach for impeachment purposes. The idea behind the exclusionary rule is that sometimes, even when the cops violate the Constitution, there are sufficient intervening factors that so um, attenuate, remove the taint, or just we would have found out anyway, that it wouldn't be fair to not allow that evidence to be admitted at trial. And this is often referred to as the fruit of the poisonous tree doctrine. The idea being that the exceptions to the exclusionary rule wash the poisonous fruit, the fruit that has been poisoned by the um, improper actions of law enforcement, allowing it to be eaten, consumed by the court, presented to the jury, used as the basis for conviction. And it's only when all of those don't work that I finally get to the light blue box up here on the right-hand side and I actually exclude evidence at trial. What does this tell you in a nutshell? It tells you that in a nutshell there are multiple opportunities for the prosecution to admit evidence that was initially uh, obtained in violation of someone's Fourth Amendment right, and that it is a, uh, it is a dance, a, a sequential steps, if you will, a waltz, a foxtrot, a quick step, I guess it depends upon the judge that you're in front of, uh, where we come to the conclusion that the evidence will or will not be excluded. If you use this flowchart and the six steps that I identified previously, 
you're going to be well on your way to properly analyzing these sorts of questions um, in the context of any criminal representation. Now, we're, we've only talked about the Fourth Amendment here. Uh, at other times, we'll talk about the Sixth Amendment, we'll talk about the Fifth Amendment, and we'll talk about the impact and the connection of the exclusionary rules with all of those. Until uh, next time, I'm Professor Rose. I'll see you down the road. Constitution, right? Um, and it's actually one of the least talked about ones in the Constitution. 
Okay. So essentially, after the Articles of Confederation Association, right, the, there was a what they did a constitutional convention in Philly, which proposed the new constitution be done on September seventeenth, seventeen eighty seven. Okay. So when they did the new constitution, they wanted to do um, you know things for for stronger change, right? They wanted have a chief executive officer in place, a CEO, things like that, right? So when you look at this, um, this can take you all the way back to the, the Virginia Declaration of Rights, okay? This also, I have you looking at the Bill of Rights and Civil Liberties and all that good stuff, right? So when you look at, at the original Bill of Rights, right, when it was done, um, and the United States in the first Congress, right, uh, which was, you, it should take you back to 1689, Bill of Rights, okay, in English, right? So you're talking about the prohibition against quartering troops in private homes. So if you look at your state constitutions, right, one of the things that you'll find um, is the subordination of military to the civil authority, right? And we even put these into our injunctions, right? So this is where the military power must necessarily be absolute, right, for the time being, and then beyond the control of civil authority so far as it's lawfully exercised, right, but it's regarded as exceptional, okay, so basically um, if this affects a person who is not in the military or in some type of naval service, right, temporary, the civil law, okay, by which the term is here meant, the general law, both civil and criminal, administered by ordinary courts, right? It was your court ordinary. So the law which governs individuals in all cases, except as they may be outside of the civil law by reason of being in the Army or the Navy or being in a region where there's some type of martial law um, that's been declared or ordinary operations of the courts, any of that stuff, right? So the civil courts cannot interfere with the proceedings of court martials. As long as they have jurisdiction, you can look at this in the case of Dines versus Hoover. Okay? Um, but on the other hand, right, court marshals cannot exclude the general di- jurisdiction of civil courts. So even persons who are in the military and naval service are therefore subject to the military law, okay? are not thereby exempted from the obedience of the civil law, and they may be required to answer the ordinary courts for their acting in violations of the general law. So the general law, as we know, is constitutional, right? So if you look up what a general law is, right, it's going to tell you that it's a law that's unrestricted as to time. It's applicable throughout the entire territory. It's subject to the power of the legislator that enacted it, and it applies to all persons in the same class, right? So then you, you have to ask, okay, well, what class of persons are you in, okay? And that, that makes a big difference because general law is essentially, um, it, it is the foundation. It is one of two universal legal categories, right, or types of law, common law, right, to any number of territories, countries, nation, nation states, any of that stuff, right? So um, they also can consider this to be public law, okay, or local law. Okay, um, but it's not special law, right? So that would be your 
constitution, that'd be your state constitution. Um, it would be your Articles of Confederation Association. It would even be your treaties, right? It, it would even deal with your federal constitution, right? So such laws are, are, are characterized by um, being unrestricted as to an amount of time, which means that they were created before your special laws were created, meaning general laws don't expire, okay? Them shits is always around, okay? So um, there's no certain time when they expire. There's not a certain situation when it's up, right? Um, only certain citizens or group of citizens. No, it, it goes for everybody. This is one of the reasons why the court of equity exists um, when your rights have been violated, right? So laws that are intended as general or public law are always enforced and are applicable to citizens and only change when legislative bodies modify the law um, or when there's a treaty that would supersede that. So when enacted, a general law essentially will govern the relationship between the individual and the applicable governing bodies, right? So relationships involved in this area of law uh, may cover a citizen's relationship with a local city or a county, municipality, um, your, your state agencies, your state governments, governmental departments, okay, your police departments, commissions departments, um, governing bodies, any of that stuff, right? So it is um, an individual's responsibility, right, to follow the rules, right? For instance, to follow the rules while traveling, right? But as we know, there's a difference between driving and traveling, right? And the use of business licenses, for example, right? If you want to do business in a certain capacity, right, then they may require you to have a license. So in contrast, private law, the, the other categories of law govern the relationship between an individual um, and the legal system, if you will, right? So there's, there's a difference there, um, and that's where we talk about things being applicable, okay? So when we look at this, right, and you look at the, the Third Amendment, okay, um, there, there's always some judicial interpretation as, as to how the Third Amendment would apply. Right, who it applies to, how it applies, and all that good stuff, right? So the Third Amendment, and I want to be clear here, right, because there's, there's, a, there's case law on this stuff, and a lot of people don't talk about this, but the Third Amendment is one of the least cited sections of the Constitution. So in the, in the words of um, the encyclopedia, right, as the history of the country progressed with little conflict on American soil, they say that the amendment has had little occasion to be invoked. So today it says that no major Supreme Court decision has used uh, the amendment as its primary basis. So the Third Amendment has been invoked in a few instances as helping uh, establish an implicit right to privacy in the Constitution. Okay. So you see the Third Amendment helps to establish your right to privacy, which means your right to privacy on your phone, uh, your right to privacy in your home, in your car, um, in your on your computers, um, and, and your all your personal effects, right? All that shit, right, can be thrown up under the Third Amendment. Okay? So uh, Justice William O. Douglas, he used the amendment along with others, in the Bill of Rights as a partial basis 
from the majority decision in the case in Griswold versus Connecticut, right? And I'll take, I would choose to take a look at that case. Um, okay, but this was a landmark decision where the Supreme Court um, ruled that the Constitution of the United States protects the liberty of married couples to buy and use contraceptives without government restriction, right? Because they wanted to use condoms and they didn't want the government stepping in their business, right? Because, you know, they, they actually didn't um, come out with condoms until the 60s, right? So um, this, was, this was the case where they basically cited the Third Amendment as implying a belief that an individual's home should be free from agents of the state. Okay? So, um, you know, there are situations where people are watched by the government. The government will watch them. When the government does so, they will place agents around them, right, to watch them, um, violating that person's judicial interpretation of the Third Amendment, which is their right to privacy, okay? So if you go look at the Youngtown Sheets and Tube Company versus Sawyer case, 1952, they cited that the Third Amendment um, provided evidence of the framers' intent to constrain executive power even during wartime. So that means even during the time of war, they could not come in and violate your right to privacy. Right? Because you're a private citizen, you're a private national, you're, if you're private, you're private. If you're not in the military, I look, I'm not in the military. You understand? So, I, you know, my, my right to privacy should never be violated. Now, it's interesting, right, because the military powers of the commander-in-chief are not to supersede representative governments of internal affairs, which seem obvious from the Constitution, right, and, and America's history. Um, but when we talk about wartime, right, okay, a military commander can seize private housing to shelter his troops. Not so, however, in the United States. For the Third Amendment, okay. So even in wartime, the seizure of needed military housing must be authorized by Congress. You understand what I'm saying to y'all? So Congress has to step in and authorize shit. So if you're doing shit without Congress, without Congress stepping in, okay, what you what you are dealing with essentially um, is a violation of your right to privacy. This is a big deal, all right? And, and what I'm speaking about tonight goes, well, it will probably go beyond some people because some people don't understand. You know, I, I've dealt with some of this stuff personally. So I'm telling y'all that this is stuff, you know, when, when you decide to do nationality, to become a national, you know, to step out of the matrix, if you will, right? Um, some people can try to deem you as a threat. Right, whereas they are in direct violation of your constitutionally protected rights of the treaties of general law. Okay, so one of the few times um, that a federal court was asked to invalidate a law or action on the Third Amendment grounds was in uh, a case called um, Engelbaum versus Carey. It was uh, in 1982. Okay. Now, in 1979, uh, prison officials in New York organized a strike where they evicted from their prison facility residences 
Okay, which they were assigned to members of the National Guard who had temporarily taken um, their place as prison guards. So the United States Court of Appeals stepped in on the Second Circuit, and they ruled a few things. They said, number one, that the term owner in the Third Amendment includes tenants, okay, paralleling similar cases regarding the Fourth Amendment governing search and seizure. Number two, said that the National Guard troops are soldiers for the purpose of the Third Amendment. And three, that the Third Amendment is incorporated. It applies to states by virtue of the 14th Amendment. Okay? Remember, your states are 14th Amendment citizens, so your states have to follow your states have to follow the amendments, which also includes the supremacy clause. Okay. Which also includes your treaties. So I'll keep going back to that. So the case was remanded to the district court, which dismissed it on the grounds that state officials could not have been aware of the interpretation, but they should have been aware of the interpretation because they have an oath that they've taken, right, to protect your rights. So in the most recent, the, the Third Amendment decision that was handed down in 2015, the United States District Court for the District of Nevada held in the Mitchell versus um, City of Henderson, that the Third Amendment does not apply to intrusions by municipal police officers. Despite their appearance and equipment, they are not soldiers. And this is the reason why you have to do an injunction against them. Because you have to remember that police officers are essentially, um, police officers are what we would consider to be um, private organizations. The police are private. They're privately owned and operated. Okay. So for claims under the Third Amendment, Mitchell had alleged that the police used his house as a lookout point. Okay. Now, in an earlier case, United States versus uh, Valenzuela, this was in 1951, uh, the defendant asked that the federal rent control law be struck down because it was an incubator in the hatchery of swarms of bureaucrats to be quartered as a stormtrooper upon people in violation of the Third Amendment of the United States. So the court declined his request, um, and then later, in the case of Jones versus the United States, um, they basically came in and said the Army reservists unsuccessfully cited the Third Amendment as justification for refusing to march. Right. So point here is that the Third Amendment allows for your right to privacy, right? No soldier shall, in the time of peace, be quartered in your house. So unless the states are at war with each other right now, right, you shouldn't be, um, shouldn't be bothered with military personnel in your home, right? So in 2005, right, um, think about Hurricane Katrina, right? And when you think about this, right, federal, state governments deploy large numbers of troops, right, approximately 50,000 National Guard personnel um, were, were, were sent to southern Louisiana, Mississippi Gulf, um, all of that in the name of humanitarian crisis, right? This was one of the largest domestic deployments within the United States. So time, right? because there's a lot of people that were passing away, um, you know, I had a lot of issues, right, but for over over that course of time, they would quarter soldiers within certain housing areas, right, um, and 
their, their, their private property was taken for military use and then um, they limited civilian speech rights. So occasionally the National Guard themselves even participated in the lawlessness that they were set to stop. Okay? So the lack of housing, high military presence, and gaps in communication among personnel in the area where there was a, a, a threat, a potential threat, if you will, Okay, during that time, it violated the Third Amendment, right? So for over 200 years, the Third Amendment rested in obscurity. They called it the Forgotten Amendment, y'all. But they said people forgot about the Third Amendment. Right? And honestly, most people have forgotten about all the amendments. You know, if, if we're going to deal with that, right? So um, the Third Amendment, and, and like I said, Hurricane Katrina is a very good example of, of what happened around that time with the amendment. So, uh, but according to the, the late Justice William Douglas, right, um, he said that Third Amendment had no immediate relation to modern to the modern politics or, or modern problems. Right? So historically, this may have been true, but it also marginalizes the importance of the Third Amendment, right? Um, and it exposes individuals in the private capacity to potentially um, a loss of liberty. Y'all understand? So when the government deploys the military domestically to restore order, the only protection an individual has against military abuse of power other than vigilantism is the self-discipline of military personnel to honor the rights bestowed by the Constitution. So if Americans generally are unaware of these rights or consider them obsolete or unimportant, the government will not require the military to protect these rights, and the individual civilians will not demand them. You see, you have to invoke their rights. So if Americans ignore the Third Amendment or dismiss it as being trivial, they are implicitly condoning military intrusion into their homes during domestic disasters when there's a rule of law that has failed them. Okay, so not only does this open the door for potential abuse, uh, theft, destruction of individuals' personal property, the taking of personal property, that, that takes that can take these clause, okay? But it opens up an era where natural and human rights are violated, okay? I just want to try to get that right. Because Hurricane Katrina was a, was a prime example of that. Okay? Now, the United States right, of America has enjoyed a very long history of relative domestic tranquility. Right? So during that time, there's, there's been little need for constitutional or statutory protection from domestic military encroachment. But nonetheless, right? Continued tension between the United States and religious fundamentalist groups, right, come in play. So when you look at things like disasters, right, that occur on the federal level or the state level or local governments, normally what do they do? They call in the military to preserve order. And then when that gets out of hand, normally, well, normally they'll call in the National Guard before they even call the military. 
so these are things that we have to deal with. And, um, you know, I, I'll go back to this consistently because a lot of people who have listened to my shows have heard me deal with these issues, treaties and things like that, right? But you, you want to become national, but you forget, right, that the pathway to using the treaties is through the Constitution. It's, it's through the Supremacy Clause, Okay. That's the pathway for you. Okay? Now, the supremacy clause, right, um, you know, it, it, is probably, it is probably one of the, the forgotten clauses. But um, it says that the laws of the United States which shall be made in pursuance thereof and all treaties made or which shall be made under the authority of the United States shall be the supreme law of the land and the judges in every state shall be bound thereby in the thing in the Constitution or the laws of any state to the contrary notwithstanding it. Right? So the question whether a certain state action is preempted by federal law is one of congressional intent. Once again, we go back to Congress. So the purpose of Congress is the ultimate touchstone. Right? So to discern Congress's intent, you've got to examine the explicit statutory language and then you got to look at the structure, and then you got to look at the purpose of the statute. So Congress's intent to supplant the state authority in a particular field is explicitly stated in the statute's language or implicitly contained in the structure. So Congress, um, look at Congress Assembly, right? There's, there's pre, what they call preemption clauses, okay? Let's take this back to our general law, right? And I've told y'all before, right, you have to be careful about what you do with your nationality because what happens? It throws you into a – it can throw you into a jurisdiction that can marginalize you if you're not careful. Nation, I'll say it again. Nationality, right, depending upon, um, you know, who who is – uh, I don't even want to call it granting it because you can't grant somebody a nationality, right? Somebody has to proclaim it, right? But depending upon the individual that that, that sits back and and wants to marginalize you, okay, they can destroy your rights. They can try to destroy your liberty, right? I invoke all of my rights as you should as well, okay. So so let's not draw false conclusions, you know, we have to look at this shit for what it really is, right, so it takes me back to subordination of military uh, to the civil authority, right, it says that any soldier may be tried in regular courts for murder or a crime committed by him, even though he may have been already tried thereof as a violation of the military law by court-martial, where there are soldiers to be held individually responsible for acts done under orders or authority of the superior officer of the general military power or is wholly a different question. So that's just one, right? But go look at the Dines versus Hoover case, right? Where it talks about court marshals and military law and all that stuff, right? So when we talk about military power, right? The military power is, um, it, it, it is in subordination to civil authority. And this is the reason why we have courts of equity, because a lot of times they don't give you equity in either one of those courts. Okay, so you go back and look at 
we talk about Anglo-Saxons and Anglo-Americans, right? Um, there was what they call anti-quartering provisions. We go back to England, Norman England, right? So go back to like 1131, around that time period, right? Um, they had what was called a London City Charter, which prohibited quartering soldiers within city walls. So other cities followed suit, and then the prohibition of troops quartered in homes spread slowly to other English urban centers, right? So when people came over here and was fighting the American Revolutionary War, they didn't want, no, they did not want British troops in their homes, okay? So during the revolution itself, the British and the American armies demanded quarter from the citizens. They told citizens, nah, I got let us be in their homes, Right? The Third Amendment was a direct response to this history of involuntary quartering prior to the revolution. Colonists repeatedly expressed displeasure over forced quartering. So the Quartering Act of 1774 was a popular act among colonists. It was, it was popular, right? Even Ben Franklin wrote, he said, quote, let the British first try the effects of quartering soldiers on butchers, bakers, or other private houses in England and then transport the measures to America. As one historian noted, he said that writers throughout the colonies attacked the practice of quartering a uh, despotic, dangerous, and violative um, view of American rights. Okay? So you got five state conventions over a period of time, five of them that established anti-quartering amendments in state constitutions. Okay? That was just in the beginning. Okay? So, I mean, you know, what we talk about here, the history of the Third Amendment, right, it, 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 it's a strong history, right? And it's something that people forget because it is a building block to protect your private rights, to not, to not have uh, 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 officers all up in your shit, right? Courts and litigants have used the Third Amendment to bolster claims for various property and privacy rights. Okay? Occasionally, occasionally when people go to court, they use the Third Amendment to highlight the constitutional checks that are placed on the military to keep the military in check. Okay? So in some instances, right, people have argued Right, some illogical and some frivolous stuff, but the Third Amendment claims, right, um, the court would sometimes dismiss. All right, so if you go look at the uh, the Emblom versus Kerry case, right, the Second Court they confronted the issue of whether National Guard troops could be quartered in on-site residences of striking correction officers, right, and court held that the the guardsmen. Were, were soldiers for the purpose of the Third Amendment, right? And because of the correction officers, they had a property-based privacy interest in their residences, right? But you have to be able to, you have to be able to prove number one that there's a need, or that there even is a war, okay? Because I'm pretty sure that I could walk outside my door and there's not a war going on, unless it's a private war, right? Something that that, that you are not told about. Right, but like I, I did a show a while back on this shit, right? And I told y'all that the states, uh, the, the the Civil War never really technically ended. This is why you can go to one state and something's legal, and another state and it's not. 
Okay. I'm going to play a quick clip for y'all. And then we'll come back and finish this conversation. Okay. Um, but, maybe this shit is important, man. I mean, it really is, you know. And you know, people tend to forget. They tend to forget all this information. Well, either that or they're not taught about it. And then if we look at, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll quickly look at it, but um, there's something known as the fruit of the poisonous tree, right? And this deals with the Fourth Amendment, right? And it's a legal metaphor. It's a it's a maxim, if you will. Um, but it's the logic of the terminology that's important, right? Um, it's the source that says the tree of evidence or evidence itself is tainted, and then anything gained from the fruit from its tainted as well, right? So the doctrine underlies the name of the first described and um it was the um lumber versus united states case right and they said that such evidence is not generally admissible in court and so you know when we talk about um, you know troops quartering your home or coming into your private residence and then violating the fourth amendment this is important right because all they got to do is come to your home and then they can violate your rights your private rights and then they can violate the third and the fourth amendment. So they violate the third amendment right, by quartering, just being in your home. And then they violate the fourth amendment, right, which is the right to search and seizure. The fourth amendment to the U.S. Constitution provides the right of the people to be secure in their persons, their houses, their papers, their effects, unreasonable searches and seizures. Okay, shall not be violated. No warrant shall be issued upon, but upon probable cause, supported by oath or affirmation, and then particularly describing the places to be searched or the persons to be seized. So then there's a law that deals with protected persons, right? And they, and that and that's a federal law, and that goes into um, even stopping a person and messing with their vehicle or their mode of transportation. Okay. This violates the Fourth Amendment. So the claim violation of the Fourth Amendment as the basis for suppressing um, evidence, right, is an invasion of privacy, right? Because you've got to claim protection under the Fourth Amendment. So in most cases, right, um, they call them warrantless searches, right? They do warrantless searches of private premises. These are prohibited under the Fourth Amendment unless specific exceptions apply. So, for instance, a warrantless search may be lawful. So, if an officer is asked and is given consent to search, if the search is um, uh, 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 lawful, right, that means that you gave them consent to search. Right? I never gave anybody consent to search shit. Right. If cops pull you over, you don't give them consent. They're not your friends. You don't give them consent to search your shit. Right? So circumstances exist in situations where a situation where people are in imminent danger, where evidence faces imminent destruction, or prior to a suspect's imminent escape. Motherfucker, who's the suspect? You can't make somebody a suspect if they didn't even know they was a suspect. You, you did what I'm saying. Right, so where there's a violation of a person, no, no, excuse me, let me digress. Where there's a violation of an individual's private rights, right, under the Fourth Amendment by federal officials, right, um, there's something called the, a Bivens action, 
right? So you can file a Bivens action against federal law enforcement officials for damages that result from unlawful search and seizure. Now, a Bivens action generally refers to a lawsuit or damages when a federal officer who is acting in the color of law, color of federal authority, alleges or violates the U.S. Constitution by federal officers acting, right? So this applies on a state, or excuse me, on a local, a state, and a federal level, okay? And then if y'all want to go international, we, we can bring in international laws as well. The plaintiff in a Bivens action must prove that a constitutionally protected right has been violated by federal officers, right? Now, if y'all want some um, insight into this, go look at Bivens versus six, okay? Uh, this is where the Supreme Court held that a violation of one's Fourth Amendment rights by federal officers can give rise to a federal cause of action for damages for unlawful searches and seizures. Unfortunately, you're not going to unlawfully search and seize my shit. It's unlawful. Okay? Now, a search under the Fourth Amendment occurs when a governmental employee or an agent of the government violates an individual's reasonable expectation of privacy. If I'm traveling up and down the road, there should be a reasonable expectation of privacy that I'm allotted. Right? You know, look, if you're, if you're traveling up and down the road with the state's license plates on your vehicle, you don't have a reasonable expectation of privacy. But if you're traveling with, let's say, um, your own plates, or let's say you're traveling um, with a with a unregistered vehicle, you have a reasonable expectation of privacy. Okay, how about strip searches? They do the shit in New York all the time, right? Strip searches, visual body cavity searches, which include uh, uh, genital inspections, uh, anal searches. They do that shit too. Constitute reasonable searches under the Fourth Amendment. When they're supported by probable cause, but what is probable cause? Probable cause would mean that they have to have some type of probable cause that you're carrying something that you're not supposed to be. Or what about the dog sniff inspection, right? A lot of people smoke weed, right? If you've ever been pulled over by the cops, then you've probably been subject to the dog sniff inspection, right? Where they come up with the dog and they, they search you, right? All of this stuff violates your rights, right? You don't give them permission to search your shit. Now, you can call me a constitutionalist, any of that, right? But the, the, the reality of the situation is that these people have taken an oath to uphold your private rights. So when they begin to violate your rights, you must know how to defend yourself. This is under the Fourth Amendment, right? So the court must determine what constitutes uh, a search or a seizure under the Fourth Amendment. So if the conduct challenge does not fall within the Fourth Amendment, the individual will not enjoy protection under the Fourth Amendment, right? So um, a search under the Fourth Amendment occurs when a government employee or an agent of the government violates an individual's reasonable expectation of privacy. Okay? So... Um, how about seizure, right? When they come in and they seize shit, they seize your stuff in your home, right? The meaning of the Fourth Amendment occurs when the police conduct will communicate a reasonable person, taking into account the circumstances surrounding the encounter that the person is not free to ignore the police presence and leave at his own will. Okay? So two elements must be present 
to constitute a seizure of a person. First, there must be a show of authority by the police officer. Okay, uh, There's got to be presence of handcuffs or weapons, the use of forceful language, uh, physical contact, right, or strong indicators of, of what they call, quote, authority. But secondly, the person that's being seized must submit to the authority. An individual who ignores the officer's request and walks away has not been seized for the Fourth Amendment, okay? So they, they do these warrantless searches, right? And they got to have reasonable suspicion to do a warrantless search or to seize your property, right? And and, and this is this is important, right? Because what, what we're dealing with here is the fact that they have historically used federal government to 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 watch people, to to quarter agents within the homes, Okay? And then they've marginalized groups of people to then go in and search their homes without probable cause. Okay, So it takes me back to the Third Amendment, right? Because there's five reasons why the Third Amendment has been relegated to being obscure. And I'll give you the reasons. The first one, right, situations that could lead to possible Third Amendment violations are normally uncommon. So the military rarely required private property, let alone private dwellings um, for its operations, right? So that's the first thing. Soldiers are customarily quartered in barracks or camps separated from civilian residential areas, so there's that. In cases where soldiers have used civilian property, consent of the property owner, uh, owners have only brought claims against soldiers for destruction of property or the trespass of property and not against the soldiers or the government themselves for impermissible quarters. So there's that. Okay? Soldiers have committed the Third Amendment violation during uh, United States few domestic wars, okay? but no violations have been litigated or documented. So you can go all the way back to after the War of 1812, and you can see this, right? Um, and, and even then, Congress authorized payment to homeowners whose property had been damaged as a result of military occupation. Right? So what does this say? It says that they can't take your private property without just compensation. At, at, at what point in time, right? and I'm sure a lot of people have dealt with this, did you have an encounter with what they call an officer, whether, whether it be a, a state trooper, a police officer, a military officer, right, a federal officer, where they took something from you, but you did not get co- just compensation for that? You understand what I'm saying to y'all? Where was the just compensation? And and they do this a lot. They do this all the time. Right? They don't give people just compensation. Okay? So something for you to think about when we're talking about this stuff. All right. So what I want to do, um, I want to go into a couple of clips. Um, I played one before we got on the air. So... You might want to go back and check that one out. But I'm going to play a couple clips for you. Um, you know, and, and, and we'll just go through this and um, we'll keep it going. So if you're in the chat and you want to finish hearing the clips, you should call in 347-989-0194 because we'll probably uh, run out of time. Um, the show has been shortened. It's a two-hour show now. So um, we still do three hours, but it's, they shorten our time a little bit. So I'm going to play a few clips. Um, and then we, we will come right back to continue our discussion. All right? All right, keep it locked. Don't run away. 
This is King George III. I imagine the American colonists thought of him like this. Every day the same thing. Variety. I want something different. Fix me hoss and pepper right away. And for good reason. The French and Indian War made England short on cash. Their solution to this problem was taxing the colonies. While no one likes new taxes, these were different. When you pay taxes, you expect something in return. England claimed they needed the money to protect the colonies from the Native Americans. But the colonists yeah, believed no they could handle that on their own. Anyone. But this is a transitional neighborhood. I mean, demographically speaking, you still have a lot of marginal types. And we merchants have found you really should have some round-the-clock security. Isn't that what the police are for? They do their best, but they got their hands full. What if, God forbid, it wasn't just vandalism? What if an employee, even the manager, say, was assaulted? These taxes were about more than revenue. For the king, these taxes were just as much about control of the American colonies. For the colonists, taxes were just as much about liberty. As you may imagine, not all the colonists were on board with the king's new tax plan. Taxes like the Stamp Act required colonists to pay a tax on every piece of printed paper they use. To avoid such tariffs, smuggling became commonplace. In turn, to combat the smuggling of untaxed goods, England relied upon writs of assistance. A writ of assistance is a written order authorizing the government to do something like taking your stuff. Writs of assistance were self-authorizing. It permitted British soldiers to write their own general search warrants. Officers can enter any home, building, or ship they wished for any reason. And officers conducting a search were not responsible for any damage they caused. This method of enforcing taxes may have been just as oppressive, if not more than, the taxes themselves. Writs of assistance were one of England's most effective tools of oppression. Colonists challenged the writs of assistance in the Massachusetts courts. A group of Boston merchants hired a lawyer named James Otis, who argued these writs violated the colonists' natural rights. While Otis's challenge failed in court, it seems he won much of the public sentiment. In particular, Otis's arguments against the writs resonated with several of the founding fathers. His arguments are credited with igniting the revolutionary movement in the colonies. As England's oppression increased, so did the sentiments of Otis's arguments. Eventually, we kicked the British out and decided to make our own rules. We wrote our own constitution, created our own Bill of Rights, and we drafted our own laws, all to prevent our own government from repeating the tyranny of King George. The Fourth Amendment has two parts. The first provides a reasonableness requirement. The second discusses a warrant requirement. Taken together, courts have interpreted these two clauses as requiring, when police are searching to discover evidence of a crime, reasonableness usually means getting a search warrant from a judge based upon probable cause. Obviously, there will be times when it's not reasonable to get a warrant. Tell me where the bomb is! Times when the reasonableness clause and the warrant clause don't seem to fit together. 
We don't have enough to get us. Trying to reconcile the two clauses creates lots of questions. In trying to answer those questions, courts have come up with what seems like a never-ending list of exceptions to the Fourth Amendment's warrant requirement. While some make sense, others not as much. Over the years, the courts have even limited the use of the exclusionary rule. There's no need to imagine how our world would look without the Fourth Amendment. The American Revolution already painted that picture, showing us a cruel and arbitrary use of power. To prevent this from reoccurring, that's why we created the Fourth Amendment. However, despite our government's own history, there are still vocal opponents of the Fourth Amendment. The phone collection program is just three votes short in the Senate, yet chances for an agreement are looking bleak. Senator Rand Paul has said that he will force an expiration. Senator Dan Coats, member of the Intelligence Committee, joins us now before he heads... The White House has said this is a matter of national security. Avs have others. If these programs expire, and if, God forbid, there is a terrorist attack on U.S. soil in the coming weeks or months, will those who voted against this, will those who kept this extension from happening have blood on their hands? Well, there will be accountability. This belief misses the entire point. Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, Thomas Paine, and John Adams did not come up with a collection of rights in our Constitution to protect the guilty. This belief ignores the lessons of granting the government the unchecked power to search its people and seize their property. It ignores the Fourth Amendment was a direct response to England's writs of assistance. This belief fails to comprehend the Founders' belief that everyone has a right to be free from unreasonable government interference. And in their eyes, this right was given to everyone by God. And rights given by your Creator were not to be arbitrarily taken away. No, I've, I've always, you know, a dictatorship would be a heck of a lot easier. There's no question about it. The Fourth Amendment is our country's guarantee to its people, to a right to privacy. And in a democracy, privacy is freedom. This may be freedom from something as invasive as the government breaking down your door to search for a tax stamp on a whim, or just the freedom to tell your friend what you want for dinner without the government listening in. Tune in every Sunday from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on The Bottom Line with Joey L. On the New Evolution Radio Network. All right, so we're back. Um, you know, I can't stress to you how important this stuff is because unless you invoke your rights, you have He who fails to protect his rights has none. Like, you have to invoke all of your rights all the time, which I think is really important for you to do. Um, matter of fact, I know that it's important for you to do, right? You invoke your rights, invoke the Constitution, invoke the state Constitution, do your injunctions, so get the oaths of office that these people are taking, right? You'll find out a whole hell of a lot when you pull somebody's oath of office here. 
and use it against you when they violate it. Right? This is why they have courts of ethics for people who are constantly violating the oath that they took. Right? Now, um, I want to talk about real quick. I want to talk about COVID, right? Because COVID nineteen is all over the place, right? It's spread across the globe, right? So um, they passed what was known as the CARES Act, uh, which provided for funding for the Department of Health and Human Services for Disease Control (CDC), right? Um, and so, in, in light of the development of this, right, um, there are actions by the federal and state governments that they're taking to surveil American people in response to the COVID-19 pandemic, right? And and this, this raises a lot of legal issues, right, that the Fourth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution um, can determine the outer bounds of what they call permissible surveillance at the federal and state levels, right? So the sidebar provides an overview of the Fourth Amendment and certain relevant doctrines and exceptions before discussing how the relevant legal frameworks could apply to coronavirus, right? So the Fourth Amendment to the United States Constitution protects against unreasonable searches and seizures, and it provides that no warrant should issue but upon probable cause, among other things, right? So the Supreme Court recognized that the fundamental purpose of the amendment is to safeguard your privacy and your security, right, against arbitrary invasions by government officials, okay? So when you apply this in the context of law enforcement, right, and the efforts that they use to obtain evidence of some type of criminal wrongdoing, right, these efforts often must satisfy requirements Okay, in a lot of other contexts. Okay, so when, when we talk about the Fourth Amendment, it is settled that the Fourth Amendment's protection extends beyond the sphere of criminal investigations. Okay, and I want y'all to really get this. Some of y'all need to redo your injunctions and put some of this shit in there. Okay, because it's not just your right to travel that goes in an in, in injunction. Okay. So the text of constitutional provisions suggests that the question of whether official actions has run afoul to the amendment dictates and entails two distinct uh, components. One is the existence of the search and the seizure, and two is the reasonable cause that they have to search you, to seize your property, right? So um, a Fourth Amendment search can occur either when the government agents physically intrude on a constitutionally protected area, including your home, okay? even absent of a physical trespass, when officials violate a person's reasonable expectation of privacy, so in simple terms, absent a physical intrusion on a constitutionally protected area, when an individual seeks to preserve something that's private and his expectation of privacy is one that society is prepared to recognize as reasonable. Your car, your home, your papers, uh, your cell phone, your emails, okay? I, I've, I'm telling you from experience, I've had phones that have been tapped into, right? That's a intrusion into my private sphere, and it qualifies as something that would have been done as a search, right? 
So um, an outgrowth of they call it jurisprudential right? uh, focus is is what they call what was a reasonable expectation of privacy, right? And so when you look at and I and I want to be clear, and that's why I brought up the whole COVID thing, right? Because um, you know there's a lot of people who who have spoken about things that have to do with COVID, and, and they have been marginalized. They've been marginalized. Okay. So once it's established that a Fourth Amendment search has occurred, um, the question becomes whether the search was reasonable, whether a particular class of searches meets reasonable standards, right? Where was the search conducted by a law enforcement official, okay, uh, for that person to discover some type of wrongdoing? Um, was that person subject to to a few specifically established and well-delineated exceptions, right? One of the, the main things that we see where search and seizures have happened are on the road, right, where they, where they will search your car and they'll see stuff from you, right? Listen, people smoke a weed. How many states have now legalized what they call marijuana or hemp, right? Only to to later say, well, okay, it can also be known as a sacrament, right? Under religion, so church and state is supposed to be separate. Okay? So when you look at like the response that they got, like COVID nineteen and the pandemic and all of that, um, this is important because one of the things that that they did when COVID first came out was they told people stay in your homes. They even had police going door to door, get in your home, right? They had police outside of people's homes. Is that not a violation of the Third Amendment? Is that not quartering people's homes? I need y'all to get this stuff, right? Really get this so, so, so we can really build on these amendments. All right, next week we're going to go into the Fifth Amendment. And we'll go all the way up. And then we'll start working on the treaties, right? I'm, I'm doing this in a sequential order. So I want to make sure that it's overstood. So that you're not a victim to the fruit of the poisonous tree, which, like I said, that's a legal term, right? It's a, it's a doctrine that they use. Okay? It, it's, it's when they can say, well, we got some, some evidence and we want it to be admissible and, uh, and we obtain this by unlawful means because we did a search and seizure or because we were able to quarter someone's home. Mm-mm. Do you know these people even go through your trash? They even go through trash. That's how deep this shit is. All right. All right. I'm going to play one more clip um, and then we'll open up the car lines. Um, and then we will get out of here. All right. All right. So here's the last clip. We'll be right back. This is on the third amendment. Um, want to make sure that it's overstood so that they're you know if y'all go back and listen to these um, audios y'all got some good understanding of what we discussed tonight i will be right back hi this is kim from khan academy and today i'm learning more about the third amendment to the u.s constitution which states that no soldier shall in time of peace be quartered in any house without the consent of the owner nor in time of war but in a manner to be prescribed by law 
This amendment clearly draws its inspiration from the Quartering Acts that caused a great deal of tension between the American colonies and Great Britain leading up to the American Revolution. But does it have any relevance to our lives today? To learn more, I sought out the help of two experts. Jay Wexler is a professor of law at Boston University School of Law, specializing in constitutional law and the Supreme Court. Glenn Reynolds is the Beauchamp Brogan Distinguished Professor of Law at the University of Tennessee College of Law. So, Professor Reynolds, why did the framers feel it was necessary to put this amendment in the Bill of Rights? Well, we don't think of, of a quartering of troops in people's homes as a very big issue these days. And, of course, some people would say that's because the Third Amendment's worked perfectly. If only the rest of the Bill of Rights worked so well. Uh, but it was a big issue for the framers because it had happened a lot. Uh, to the framers, the English civil wars of the 17th century were, were recent history, and they were, their attitudes were very much shaped by that. And the Stuart kings in particular used quartering of troops as a way to punish towns and areas that they didn't like. Uh, the soldiers back then were basically jail sweepings. They, they had a tendency to steal and to rape and to get into fights, uh, even with the people they were quartered with. So it was to, to have troops quartered upon a town was a way of, of sort of mass punishment. And uh, that made the English rather unhappy. And uh, after the Glorious Revolution, they banned the practice in uh, England, but they did not ban it in the colonies. Uh, the king had quartered troops in private homes in the colonies in what became the United States for a long time before the revolution, since at least uh, 1670. And as it's easy to imagine, this caused a lot of tension between the homeowners in the colonies and the British troops. And that it got even worse as we found ourselves in the French and Indian War in the 1750s and 1760s. Because nobody wants the, the government to put troops in their house. The house is the place where, where people uh, live their most private lives. And to have the government come in and say, here, the soldiers are going to live here with you now, is something that, understandably, the colonists were very uh, worried about and didn't like very much. So it got, things got worse in the 1760s when England uh, uh, the, passed the, the, the first quartering act, which basically required the colonies had to provide barracks for the king's troops. And if there weren't barracks, then the soldiers were uh, authorized to live in inns and ale houses and houses, this is right from the act itself, selling rum and brandy and strong water. And then if there weren't enough of those around, they could live in the private buildings, uninhabited houses and barns and things like this. And that that requirement resulted in part in the Stamp Act of 1765, which led then to the Tea Party, which everybody knows about. And the Tea Party really made uh, the king angry, after that, the uh, the king passed or the parliament passed the second quartering act of 1774, which required colonists to allow the king's troops to live in their homes, which was, of course, something that the colonists absolutely couldn't stand. So when we got our uh, independence, it was one of the, the, the most important goals of the framers to make sure that this kind of thing could not happen. So what was so problematic about the possibility of having a soldier quartered in your home or, or multiple soldiers quartered in your home? Well, uh, some of us don't particularly like having house guests in general, uh, but, you know, they're, they're not house guests. I mean, the problem is, you know, troops back then were not like, you know, you think of soldiers today in the American army, it's hard to get in the army. You know, people, people try to get in the army and they're told, go away, your grades aren't good enough and you're not smart enough. 
Uh, and if you have a criminal record, they don't want you. Uh, it wasn't like that back then. Um, warfare was, was bloody and awful. The troops stood in masses of 100 yards from each other and blasted away with these uh, brown death muskets. Uh, actually, the most common injury then was when pieces of the soldier next to you were driven into you, jawbone and stuff like that. Uh, so it was pretty nasty, and the discipline that it took to make people do that was pretty harsh, and it wasn't very appealing to uh, the better sort. So literally, uh, a lot of these soldiers were people who were sent there straight from jail. Uh, so they were not very nice people to have living in your house, and they didn't uh, have a very good attitude when they did. I think they were widely viewed as being uh, cruel, as being unfriendly, maybe even drunk a lot. But but it was certainly not the case that they were that they were um, you know making their own beds and uh, cleaning up after their uh, after their dinner and such like that. So it was it was they were not guests. They were people who were living uh, in the in the houses, taking liberties uh, you know any way they wanted and making a basically a, a, a nuisance of themselves for sure. So I mean, imagine if some soldier you didn't know and you didn't invite into your house was all of a sudden staying in your living room. And then multiply that by you know, how, however many soldiers it might be, 10, who knows, living in your living room while you're trying to carry out the daily tasks of your life and talking with your children and making plans about dinner. And uh, can you imagine how, how offensive that would be and how problematic that would be to have this, the government's troops hanging out in your living room? It would be uh, pretty awful. So it's no surprise that the framers, I think, uh, objected to this and and put this con- uh, this amendment into the Constitution. So do you think that the Quartering Act of 1774, do you think that was the straw that broke the camel's back in the American Revolution? Was it that living with soldiers was just so noxious that it propelled the colonists over the edge into the revolution? Well, you know, there were a lot of straws that broke that camel's back, so it's hard to say uh, which was. But I think one of the things that the colonists hated about it was that they were being subjected to a rule that didn't apply in England. And, you know, one of the things they revolted for, remember, was they thought they'd been deprived of what they called the rights of Englishmen. And this was just another example of the crowd feeling free to do things in the colonies uh, that it wouldn't do at home. And that sent a signal to the colonists that you're not as important. You're not full-blown citizens. We don't care about you as much, and you don't have the same rights. And I think that was what was intolerable about it. So this seems like uh, an amendment that has this very specific historical background. But how does this kind of play forward into the future? Was there any danger that there might be later quartering of soldiers after the framing of the Constitution? Well, there was always the risk. Uh, There was always the risk that even in the independent United States, that the government might at some point require homeowners to put up soldiers. And in fact, there's some evidence that during the Civil War this happened. Uh, I think the evidence is a little foggy, but uh, there's certainly a suggestion in the literature that the Union government required homeowners to put up Union troops. And so it could have been a problem. It, it's not something that has uh, that has in fact turned into a huge issue over time, which might say something about how successful the Third Amendment has been uh, in our history. But it, so it was always a risk. I think it was never far from the minds of the framers this possibility that the government might decide to put uh, to put its soldiers into people's private homes. I think at the time of the revolution and when the framers were putting together the Constitution, they had a real fear of standing armies, right? Uh, they, they didn't want a standing army in the United States. In fact, there wasn't one in the United States at all, a professional 
army until after the Civil War, I believe. Um, and now we see a standing army, a very large standing army of the United States as, as being pretty normal. How do you think the Third Amendment shows how our ideas of standing armies have changed over time? You know, one historian said that our, our framers had an almost panic fear of standing armies. And that was based, again, on the history of the English Civil Wars in the 17th century, where standing armies, you know, the, the, the tradition was the king would disarm people he didn't like and then use the army against them. And that was seen as very bad. Standing armies were seen as somebody who was loyal to who paid them, uh, not to the country. Uh, I think our army has had a different trajectory. I mean, really, we didn't have a large standing army in the United States uh, on a regular basis until after World War II. So I think we're just less afraid of it because our army has been more professional, uh, maybe because we feel like the army is more loyal to citizens than it is to who pays it, um, or maybe because we've just uh, lost perhaps a vital edge of paranoia that the framers had. Has there ever been a Supreme Court case that ruled based on the Third Amendment? Uh, there's a single uh, federal court of appeals case called Ingblom against Kerry, uh, where the uh, Federal Court of Appeals uh, applied the Third Amendment uh, in, in a New York prison riot case where um, guards were pushed out of their barracks and National Guardsmen were put in. Uh, but the Supreme Court's never done it. But the Supreme Court has relied on the Third Amendment. In fact, one of the most famous cases uh, of the second half of the 20th century from the Warren Court was Griswold against Connecticut. That was actually a case striking down laws against birth control which was one of the forerunners to Roe versus Wade. And in that case, the Supreme Court was trying to figure out if the Constitution encompassed a, a right to privacy. And Justice Douglas wrote this opinion, which, which said that there were kind of penumbras or emanations from a variety of the amendments in the Bill of Rights, the Fourth Amendment, the First Amendment, and importantly, the Third Amendment that suggested that the Constitution does protect privacy rights to some degree. That was kind of the high point. Uh, for the Third Amendment in Supreme Court history. And even in the cases that followed the Griswold decision, which which found, for example, the uh, the right uh, to an abortion, et cetera, the court did not rely on that Third Amendment penumbra theory. So it was one case the Supreme Court cited the Third Amendment as being the source of a sort of enigmatic uh, privacy right. Other than that, the Supreme Court has really not touched the Third Amendment ever. So there's kind of a, a suggestion of the right to privacy that goes along with the Third Amendment and also perhaps the Fourth Amendment. Do you think that's the way that the Third Amendment is perhaps most relevant to us now? Well, it could be. I mean, there's been some thought and there have been some law review articles and other speculation on this that, for example, uh, when the government install spyware on your computer at home, that's the equivalent of quartering troops in your house because somebody is, is inside your house spying on you uh, and, and breaking your privacy, uh, sort of like having to have a soldier at home. Uh, no courts tell that as far as I know, but it's not crazy. And there have been a few other cases uh, more on point uh, where people claim that when police SWAT teams took over their homes to look down on the neighbors and such, that that was troop quartering, but courts so far have said that's not the same thing since they're not actually sleeping there. One possibility is to say, hey, the Third Amendment really plays no role. Um, it's The courts don't talk about it. Nobody really knows much about what it says. Um, and so it's really not important. On the other hand, you could argue 
Uh, and I suggest that this is probably a plausible argument that, in fact, the Third Amendment has done a lot. Uh, the fact that you don't see cases about quartering of troops may very well indicate how well the Third Amendment is serving it. So the Third Amendment just uh, is 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 quiet. But that's because it's doing its job so well uh, and that nobody comes and tries to quarter troops in there in anybody's houses. And if they did, they would immediately lose. So you could argue uh, from that perspective that the Third Amendment is one of the most powerful and well-working amendments that we have in the Constitution. One thing that's interesting about co uh, constitutional history is that sometimes we see parts of the Constitution that have been dormant for a really long time all of a sudden pop up into consciousness, uh, either because the courts have started reading them differently or because the facts of the world change and so all of a sudden the amendment or other constitutional provision seems relevant. And that could potentially happen in, with the Third Amendment. And uh, what I would cite here are uh, two developments in the world. One is that the, we see these days the police becoming more militarized and so it looks kind of like the police are soldiers in a way when they come all armed and with their in armored vehicles and such. And the second phenomenon is kind of the increased surveillance that we're seeing from the government into private uh, into private phone conversations, private computer files, and, and things like that. And so it's possible that we uh, a court at some point might think that the uh, the government is violating. If not the the letter, the, then the spirit of the Third Amendment by uh, basically uh, engaging in the 21st century version of quartering uh, by monitoring uh, people's uh, people's communications within the home in a kind of militaristic way. So we've learned that the Third Amendment prevents the government from quartering soldiers in the homes of American citizens. And that, in fact, it does such a good job, the Supreme Court has only made one decision using the Third Amendment as its primary basis. But the Third Amendment's implied guarantee of privacy in the home may come to be more important as we debate the limits of government surveillance of our computers. To learn more about the Third Amendment, visit the National Constitution Center's Interactive Constitution and Khan Academy's resources on U.S. government and politics. DipsetUSA.com. Yes. Go to booking at DipsetUSA.com yes. and make it happen if you're a promoter trying to get on. Mm -hmm. We only got about five more dates left. We got like 30 dates to go on the road. I'm very excited to go on the road with these brothers. I haven't been on the road since about 96 or 97. Oh, yeah. No, I went on a tunnel tour, but I, it was different. My mind wasn't right. My mind's right this time. New York City, you know what time it is. Jim Jones, Killer Cam, Joel Santana, Freaky Jeeky. Vipset 2015. Let's yeah. work. We there, bro. I'm all about this move. Yep. I'm all about this bread. bread. And if I get caught slipping, what? I can end up in the pit. So? Bitch, better have my money. 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 Nigga, better have my money. 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 Bitch, better have my money. money. Nigga, better have my money. money. My man, baby mom, in the morning, tell him GM. Kiss him on the floor. Podcast or on the blog talk, all right? That's available there for you to listen to. 
Um, with that being said, go to makemorecommerce.com. Next week, we're going to get to the Fifth Amendment, all right, as we walk our way through. Remember, the First Amendment is your freedom of speech, all right? Um, and I, we covered that a while back, so I did not cover that in our series, um, but we'll probably work our way back to that. But as I said, we're going to do every week, we'll be doing a series. The next week, um, I'll go through the Fifth and the Sixth Amendment next week, all right? And we'll go all the way up till we get to the treaties. And then we'll do a series of treaties. I got a lot of treaties, all right? Um, I'll be doing some, some webinars upcoming. I'll have those scheduled. And at the top of the year, I'm looking at doing a couple of seminars. Uh, New York looking like it's going to be on the list. If you're in that area, look forward to seeing you. All right, with that being said, though, I'm going to say uh, peace to the gods if you don't have any questions. And uh, we're going to get out of here, man. I'll holler at y'all next week. Makeboycommerce.com. Peace to the gods. Nigga better have my money. Bitch better have my money. My money. Nigga better have my money. Living life big, this that more money shit. So no matter what I get, I'm screaming more money, bitch. More money coming in, more money spent. Smelling like money, that's that more money sent. AMG kit, that's that more money bands. Knock, knock, open the door, I'm letting more money in. She like, what's this more money shit? I'm like, them niggas that you with, I'm getting more money then. Pockets full of Chuck E. Cheese, I'm under the money tree and I'm just catching all the leaves. She just wanna feel a breeze, I just wanna on her knees, cold nigga, and he freeze. I'm all about this moonlight.